I flew in last yesterday afternoon from Orlando, Florida. Immediately found my way to a hotel, was whisked away to a wonderful dinner uh, hosted by Jim and Caroline Bowdersmith, John Caroline, sorry, the bishop and his wife. We had a really great time together. I have this morning preached one sermon and did the forum, and here we are, boom, number three. So I'm kind of <laughs> as I come, but really, really happy to be here. It's been a, just a joy to be a part of the life of this congregation and to really meet some very, very wonderful people. Um, I want to say, and I said this at the earlier service, if, you, if the sermon goes well, then you can thank God. If it doesn't go well, you can blame Caroline because she was the one that extended the invitation. But that said, I'm glad to be here. I want to begin by telling a story. I am 18 years of age in this story, the middle of my freshman year of college. I'd come home on break, and I had been away from the church for a very long time. In fact, um, I said, and I know God was laughing, thank God I don't have to go to church anymore now that I was no longer living at home. But I had ended up at a church, Grace and Holy Trinity Episcopal Church down in, in downtown Richmond, um, at their early service. And the reason I went to that church at that early service because I've had a radical transformation in the gospel. Uh, Jesus met me in the most remarkable way at the Roslyn Retreat Center, which is the Episcopal Retreat Center in Richmond. Uh, but it was an interdenominational gathering, and uh, I met people there like I'd never met before. And long story short, God used it to change my life, so I showed up at Grace and Holy Trinity. It was your typical smaller early service. It took place in a chapel, not in their main sanctuary space. There were probably maybe 15, 20 people there. Now, remember, I am 18 years of age, which means I'm the youngest person in the room probably at least by 40 years. So I was conspicuous in that way. I was not a part of their regular crowd. That was not my home church. But I'm just sitting there listening. It's the 28 prayer book at that point, very similar to what we're doing today in Write One. And the words are just hitting me like hammers into my heart. I was not prepared for the impact the language was having on me, not only its beauty, but more importantly, its raw power. I don't know whether you think of our liturgies as having that kind of raw power, but if you compare them in other places, they do. I don't know another tradition that begins each and every single Eucharist service by, in essence, laying out our hearts bare before God, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. I can't pretend in this place God knows things about me that I don't know about myself, and I cannot hide. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. Meaning, not only does God see what's going on, but I'm asking him to do something about it. The colic today has a similar kind of bent. There's a recognition in the colic, and it's in fact a cry for help that there is a part of me 
that is profoundly self-centered, that does not want to get too close to God because I'm afraid of what might be asked of me. And so what, I, what Cranmer does in a way that's just genius is that he lays all of that out, not only praying that God would increase in us the things that would draw us close to him, increase of faith, hope, and charity, but here's the killer line, and that we may obtain which thou dost promise, what has to happen? My heart needs to be changed. Make us, did you hear the verb? Make us love what you command. It's a frank admission that left to my own devices, I will choose myself almost every single time. Unless it benefits me in some very clear way, I am not one to sign up for sacrifice. And yet the very nature of faith, hope, and charity is, in fact, sacrifice. It's stepping out. It's doing things that you would, I would not normally do because the whole very nature of faith, hope, and charity is that it is sacrificial, it is giving, and in fact, it's giving to the uttermost. Uh, they've heard me say already this morning that I believe with all of my heart that God delights to put us in places where we have to rely on Him because we are over our heads and we know it. Our own resources are not going to be able to get the job done. We face that squarely. And the only way we're going to come out of this is for God to break in and do things both in us and through us that would not normally happen. When you're living a life like that, that's when the increase of faith, hope, and charity actually begins to happen because that's what you need. You see, so long as I'm still living within the realm of what is possible for me to be able to do based on things like education, background, talent, intellect, and the like, I don't need the increase of faith, hope, and charity. I've got it all covered, thank you very much. And there are a lot of people who, in fact, think about faith because they have that posture. They think of faith as basically that which assuages guilt, makes them feel better extraordinarily therapeutic in that sense. And there's nothing wrong with therapy or having that kind of solace. But the point of that, that kind of faith, hope, and charity, is not merely for me to feel better about myself. This isn't, the gospel isn't really about you or me. It's much bigger than that. It's actually about what God is doing to literally change the whole world that the earth may be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And those who are willing to say yes to God and ask Him to do the very thing that we prayed in the collect are actually launched way out of the, out of the harbor of their own self-protection and out on a kind of wild sea where they are invited and called upon God to live in a level of faith, hope, and charity that would not normally be asked of them within their own circles. And because God has, loves the whole world, He's got the whole world at His disposal. He can do anything that He likes. And He can do anything that He likes with us. And if we know that He is, in fact, trustable, If we know that, in fact, he can touch the deepest reaches of our heart, and what he does when he does that is bring healing and grace, 
then we are more than willing to say, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts and admit the fact that we are, in fact, inside, absolutely bare before him. I mean, check your own emotional reaction. If you hear the collect for purity in its great power, and what you want to do is duck, a part of what that shows you sort of welds up a place of fear. What it shows you is that you still, in your heart of hearts, or I, don't know that God is particularly trustable. That instead, what God asks of me is a certain level of behavior. And so long as I carry out that behavior, then God will like me. And what that means is, is that the gospel is about, in the end, my own personal accomplishments. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because if that's true, I know enough about myself to know that while I try to do things that are right, I also know there's plenty in my heart and in my mind that isn't very right at all. I need cleanse the thoughts of my heart, our hearts, by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. And so if I have any sense that somehow, you know, he's Santa Claus in the sky making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice, I'm, I'm just sunk. What's the line? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. That's what I need. What I need is mercy. What I need is the steadfast love that endures forever. What I need is for God to break into my life and give me the things that I do not deserve but still desperately need, and I trust the fact that that's exactly what God is going to do. That's what we see in the gospel reading today. We're introduced to a man by the name of Bartimaeus, and he is known to the author because his family heritage is mentioned. He is Bartimaeus, not just any Bartimaeus. He's Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, which means there were people who knew him. But it also says something because his father is mentioned about the depths of his fall because no family in that area would have left any child of theirs to beg on the street. So that if he is a son of Timaeus, that means he has been disowned by Timaeus. It means that he had, but he has no longer. And worse, he has been struck blind. Unlike the story of the man born blind, whom Jesus heals. In this story, it's very clear. When Bartimaeus is asked by Jesus, what do you want me to do? He says, my teacher, let me see again. And so the sentiment of the community would have been, he got what he deserved. He squandered what he had. He was rejected by his family. They disowned him which meant in that culture, you're turning your back. My son is dead to me. And he got, his, he got what was due him. God just struck him blind on top of it. I hope he rots in the street. And so when he cries out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's exactly what he means. 
In other words, what he is not asking Jesus to do is to give him what was due him. He was already paying the penalty in his body, in his own physical condition, in his own being an outcast from the society, waiting, hopefully, that somebody might see themselves as accruing enough points before God by putting money in his coffer, because that's how they thought. You know, you're blessing God by giving to the poor. That's what it says in Proverbs. So, Lord, bring some religious people my way so maybe I can eat tonight. So when he cries out to Jesus for mercy, it is, I know I'm getting what I deserve right now. I need you to come in and give me what I do not deserve. I need, in essence, a second chance. Help me to see again. And Jesus, of course, immediately heals the man on the spot. Immediately he regained his sight, not later, but immediately, and followed him on the way. In some ways, that story in the Gospel of Mark is both a testimony to Jesus' compassion for the undeserving, but it's also a recorded testimony of what Jesus did in the life of Bartimaeus as good news to us. Because there are plenty of us who have had, whether that be in religious heritage, whether that be in family connections, whether that be in the gifts that we've received, and we don't live up to what what the expectations are at all. And we know it. And we need God. But if we're courageous enough like Bartimaeus to cry out... Did you hear? He began to cry out in such a way, shout is the word that Mark uses, in a way that embarrassed everybody around him. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even all the more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. There is a point in your life, if you're willing to get there, where Jesus will strip you of every single place of your own self-reliance, and you have to call upon God because you have no other place to go, and that is exactly where Jesus will meet you. Exactly. If you're still toying with the idea of prayer is, if you do this, I'll do this. Sometimes gracious, God is gracious enough to answer those kinds of quid pro quo prayers. But more often than not, what God is in fact profoundly interested in is the heart of a human being who is willing to be so abject that they come to the end of themselves and begin to cry out to him and so that the testimony of the psalm becomes theirs. I sought the Lord and he answered me and listen, delivered me from all my terror. In other words, God, because he knows all that is in our hearts, is literally willing and able to go to the bottom of what it is that goes on in our lives, even the things that we never tell anybody, and come in those places where we desperately need him and bring mercy, healing, and restoration in a way that changes us more powerfully than anything we can ever imagine. And God knows that we don't want to go there. That's why we pray, make 
us love, what you commanded. We're actually giving God permission to break into the places of our strongest places of personal control, to break us out of that kind of selfishness, open our heart to the adventure of knowing his love, being set free in ways that we never even thought possible, and having the kind of song in our hearts. Angels help us to adore him. Ye behold him face to face. I mean, there's an ecstasy in that line that arises out of a heart that knows that before him, even in the midst of my worst places of sin and shame, I am fully adopted into the family of God. I am forgiven of everything. I'm going to heaven when I die, and he promises that he will never leave me or forsake me and that nothing can take me out of his hand. And when that's true, you can face anything in life. Absolutely anything, even the worst. Because the very same, I said this to the class, the very same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Why wouldn't you want that? So come, family of God, as we offer the creed, as we receive the Eucharist, Give yourself permission to to open your heart a little more. As a friend of mine says, to be a little braver, a little bit braver in the presence of God with who you really are and knowing that who will be there to greet you with the same courage and the same perfect love is the one who will cast out fear and call you his own forever. Amen.